the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. All right, everybody, you're listening to the Dennis Prager Show. I thank you for doing so. And while there is a lot in the news that I want to talk to you about, I want to talk first to uh, Mitchell Zukoff, who is a professor at Boston University, a professor of journalism, who has written a book about something that has always fascinated me, and I suspect I'm not alone. I, I suspect that 98.423% of you listening has heard of the, the idea of or the nonsense of, or whatever you wish to call or, or the evil of, a Ponzi scheme, where uh, people uh, pay in money, and some get more money, but eventually a lot of people lose all their money. Well, it's actually named after somebody. It, there was a guy, Ponzi, and Charles Ponzi is the guy who developed this, and Mitchell Zukoff of Boston University has written the true story of a financial legend, Ponzi. This is Dennis Prager, and welcome to the program. Dennis, thank you. Hi, thank you. It is, uh, uh, as soon as I saw this book was written, I knew that I had to have you on. I don't know if there is anybody who has a financial anything named after him that is as famous or infamous as Ponzi. Even Capone didn't get, uh, yeah. a, you know, a, a submachine gun named after him. That's right. That, that, yes, I mean, when you think, I can't, I cannot think of of a parallel. This uh, this this Ponzi fascinates. I guess I don't think he fascinates people. They don't even think of him. Mm. When in fact, I didn't know it was named after a guy. So I, I assume that I'm I'm in the majority in that way. We all heard of the scheme, Absolutely. but we don't know the guy. You Why know, it's did... funny. I, th- I think you were right when you said 98.423% had heard of Ponzi schemes. I think the, the other half of that equation is that 1.577 actually knew about Charles Ponzi. Oh, right. And you're one of them. <laughs> Why did you write this book? But for that very reason. You know, I, I was a journalist for a long time at the Boston, Boston Globe. And to tell stories that people didn't know has always been a passion of mine. And the fact that, that there was this Charles Ponzi, I was a banking reporter in Boston when banks were failing left and right. And someone said to me, out of the blue, you know, banks haven't failed like this since the days of Ponzi. And when I heard uh, Ponzi, like in the scheme, and I said, yeah, he was a Boston guy. Uh-oh. And it sent me down the path. You know what you just said, you like stories. What did you say of the unknown, or what was the word you stories used? Stories that haven't been told. That's stories it. That... Do you know I have found doing this program, those are my favorite interviews, mm-hmm. the stories that have not been told. I had a, I had a, an author on about the the one gold coin that's a, a double eagle. From... The double eagle book, yes. Yes. I, I mm-hmm. tell you. I sat I sat at the microphone riveted for an hour. I, I I could not believe and how much you learn about about history. Not just about that unknown item. Yes. And so uh I I believe and I w I don't let you believe me, I'm gonna let you talk, but I, I, I just have okay. to tell you and my listeners, I think the best way to learn history is through the micro, not you know, a history of America in the nineteen twenties may be wonderful. 
But if you take one person in the 1920s, you may learn more. I couldn't agree more. And, and in fact, that is such an important way to look at, at, at this book, and I think at a lot of books like this, narrative histories, where you know, Ponzi couldn't have existed at any other time. You have, you know, World War I is over, prohibition is in effect, the stock market's revving up, you've got immigration, you know, people pouring into our shores, you've got, you know, the U.S. population for the first time ever has become more city-fied, more urban than rural. Women have just gotten the right to vote. There's a tremendous amount of change going on, tremendous uncertainty, and that is all the backdrop. That You could write a book about each one of those items I just mentioned, but if you see it through the prism of Ponzi's scheme and how this guy could possibly operate like this and rake in millions upon millions of dollars in such a short time, it all comes together. What year was it? 1920. And the war, let, let's put everything in context. The war is over in 19. Yep. Uh-huh. Just over. Now, People now, are expecting the post-war prosperity. So there is an optimism in the air. Precisely. All right. That's the the mood of the country is optimistic, even though we've lost so many men. Yes. Uh, we've just fought a war, and economically, how is the country doing in 1920? But we, the people are still waiting for the post-war bounce, the the big pickup after the war that people had been expecting and people had been promised. And it wasn't quite coming yet. The stock market is just starting to rev up. It'll really be later in the 20s when the real craziness starts in the market. Um, but, you know, the optimism, though, is mixed with a lot of uncertainty. We've got the Red Scare going on. We've got a tremendous fear that with all these new immigrants are going to bring in new ideas, whether it's communism or whether it's uh, socialism, fascism. And so while there's optimism and there's a lot of hopefulness and a lot of expectation, there's also uncertainty. And that is the perfect climate into which you can inject a scheme like this. Now, who was Charles Ponzi before uh, the scheme? Charles Ponzi was an Italian immigrant. He was born to an aristocratic family in a town called Lugo, Italy, in 1882. He squandered his small inheritance when he was partying, when he should have been studying at the University of Rome. And his family said, go to America, make your fortune there. Bright young man like you, handsome, charming, uh, dapper, a good dresser. He washes up on the shores of Boston in 1903. And how, how old? He's 21 years old. Mm-hmm. Spends the next 15 years searching for riches, bouncing up and down the East Coast, out to, uh, to the Midwest a little bit, having amazing heroic adventures, including saving a woman's life by donating his own skin when she's burned in a horrible accident. A stranger or someone he knew? A stranger. Really? A who was working in a mining camp as a nurse where he was also working. And he was friendly with a doctor there. And the doctor was, was in, in Ponzi's tent one night talking about how terrible it was that Rose was likely to die. And, in fact, excuse me, Pearl was likely to die, Pearl Gossett. And Ponzi said, well, what's the problem? Well, I have no one who's willing to donate skin to save her. She was horribly burned in this kerosene explosion. And Ponzi said, take all you need. And the rest of his life he spent with enormous swaths, uh, uh, scars, symmetrical scars on his back and on the back of his legs where the doctor had taken off chunks of skin. That's, an, that's a remarkable act. You know, this, one of the reasons this fascinates me is I talk a great deal on my program about good and evil mm. and uh, how people have moral bank accounts. Mm-hmm. And in assessing Ponzi, 
And I don't know the damage he did yet, so you know we're not ready to make a judgment. I may not even make one, but I, I, you know, it's not it's not all I do in life. But but it is very important to put the man, not the scheme, but the man into context. That yeah. is that is a very rare act of a human, and in those days, it's had to have been painful. I mean, I'm sure it's painful today, but uh, but it must have been particularly painful then. Absolutely, he scarred his body. He suffered from pleurisy after it, it nearly killed him. He was laid up in bed for weeks and weeks after that. Did it save the woman? It saved her life. How did she feel toward him? Uh, you know, enormously grateful. She, you know, she knew that she would not be alive were it not for him. And uh, the, the townspeople were, you know, gathered around and nominated him for a heroism award. Wow. And so, so, you know, when you hear the name Ponzi or you hear a Ponzi scheme, it's immediately you have, when you talk about good and evil, People have a, a one-dimensional sense of, of mm-hmm. it. oh, this is a schemer, this is a bad guy. Sometimes, as you said, it's much more complex, and that's, that makes it more interesting to me, that he wasn't pure evil. He was a dreamer. Yes, he was a schemer, but he had this complexity and this moral complexity that really showed up in the, in the incident with Pearl Gossett. All right, so well, that is, that is a very powerful story. Now, what is he doing for a living prior to the scheme? You name it. He's working as a road drummer, which is, you know, working on road crews. He's working as a waiter. He's working um, in a mining camp as a male nurse. He's just sort of keeping body and soul together. Well, then it sounds to me like he's not doing much better here than had he stayed with his aristocratic family back in Italy. Exactly. In fact, he probably could have gotten himself a clerkship somewhere in an office in Italy, even just with three years of, of college education. But once he came here, he was so determined to live up to his mother's expectations. She had sent him here. He, his father had died when he was young, and she had such tremendous confidence in him. She spent his youth, in his words, building castles in the air about what a glorious future I would have. But once he went to America, he felt as though he could not go back to Italy uh-huh. in shame. And you know, so, you never want to disappoint your mom. <laughs> that's right. It's just the way that's it is. True. I will be back. I am very interested if anybody listening has suffered from a Ponzi scheme or has been involved in any. 1-8 Prager 776 Mitchell Zukoff. The book is Ponzi's Scheme, the true story of a financial legend. You're listening to The Dennis Prager Show, 1-8 Prager 776. Tell me why Relief Factor is so successful at lowering or eliminating pain. I'm often asked that question, and the owners of Relief Factor tell me they believe our bodies were designed to heal. That's right, designed to heal, and I agree with them. The doctors who formulated Relief Factor selected the four best ingredients, yes, 100% drug-free ingredients, each helping your body deal with inflammation. Each of the four ingredients deals with inflammation from a different metabolic pathway. That's right there, approaching from four different angles, maybe why so many people find such wonderful relief. So if you have back pain, shoulder, neck, hip, knee, or foot pain from exercise or just getting older, you should order the three-week quick start discount to Tony1995 to see if it will work for you. It has for about 70% of the half million people who've tried it and they've ordered more. Go to relieffactor.com or call 800-4-RELIEF, the number 4-RELIEF, to find out about this offer. Feel the difference. This is the way to learn history, my friends. You're listening to the Dennis Prager Show. My guest is Mitchell Zukoff. And though he is a professor of journalism, I do not want you to hold it against him. (laughs) 
You don't know how true that is, Professor Zuko. I, I do. Okay, fine. <laughs> <laughs> you do. <laughs> Welcome to the program. And those of you in the uh, Boston area can hear, uh, you can tell your relatives, friends, and enemies you're on WTTT right now. I will. Mitchell Zukoff has written Ponzi's Scheme, and it is the true story of a financial legend. Uh, we were deluged with calls, you might uh, be interested to know, uh, all saying the same thing. When I asked, have you ever been uh, involved in or a victim of a Ponzi scheme, uh, immediately all lights lit up and said Social Security. Ah, uh, yes. What do you think of that? Well, you know, it does have certain things in common, absolutely. You have early, you know, the, the, the nature of a Ponzi scheme is that early investors are paid off with the money of later investors. Right. There's, no, there's nothing underpinning it. And so certainly Social Security, uh, current people who are paying in are just paying in to the retirees now collecting. So in that sense, yes, it has the same model. One thing I would say, it makes it clearly different, is that there's no trick to it. Nobody is claiming that it's anything but that. And so... Uh, you know the difference in a real. Oh, that's Ponzi a good. That no, that's very good. It's a uh, eyes opened Ponzi exactly. scheme. Exactly, <laughs> that's right. You know, nobody's pretending that, that we're really investing that money or keeping uh, it in a lock box or, or whatever you want to call it. Um, it's straightforward. Early investors are being paid with money from later investors. So yes, the model fits. The trick again in a real Ponzi scheme is that people are misled that it's something else going on, that we're right. really investing in some great All right, so, so let, let's go back, and we'll take calls here. one prager 776 uh, Here, I, I, well, for, let's take a couple right now, in fact. In sure. uh, Forest Park, uh, Illinois, W-I-N-D, James. Hello, James. Dennis Prager and Mitchell Zukoff. Hello. I, I, I came up with the same comment. It's Social Security, it's a Ponzi scheme. It's, it's only going to work as long as we've got enough people paying in to cover the retirees. Right. So how do you, uh, uh, do you accept uh, Professor Zukov's statement that at least our, it's not being portrayed as anything else? Well, you know, at various times politicians have said, oh, we're putting it in the Social Security lockbox. But, yeah, I, I guess pretty much everybody does know what it is. Right. There's no lockbox for it in a Ponzi scheme, is there, Professor? There is not. No, that's the whole point, yeah. I guess. <laughs> Tyler, uh, Tyler, Texas, uh, Cliff on Case Guy. Hello, Cliff. Dennis Prager, Mitchell Zukov. Uh, good morning, Dennis. Hi. Hi. Uh, I guess you want some background on, on the scheme that I was <laughs> taken in. Yeah, by. If, you, if you could do it quickly, sure. Yes, it was uh, a company called Mobile Billboards, and uh, they was structured so that an investor purchased a billboard frame from them and simultaneously would enter into a leaseback agreement with Outdoor Media Company, which is part of the lawsuit. And they would receive a lease payment equivalent to about 13% annually. So what was going on then, they would sell these, and they sold about $60.5 million uh, of these systems before they were shut down by the Security Exchange Commission. So because all the money they would rake in was from the next buyer? Right. Yeah, well, that, so that that's a good example, that's I it. guess. Billboard, yeah, I've heard of the billboard scheme. Yep. You have. Oh, oh sure. that's very interesting. They're, they're, they, they take every variety. You can you you name the product, and somebody's tried to turn it into a Ponzi scheme, I believe. All right, the billboard L- is one let's... that we have seen. Yep. All right. Well, we'll talk about some of the the better known schemes later. Let's first go back to Ponzi. Right now, yep. Ponzi. If I'd have met Ponzi 
in 19, uh, when did the scheme happen again, 20 he what? He got the idea in 1919, and 1920 is when it really took off. All right, so had I met him, though, uh, in 1915, I'd have thought this is a, 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 an altruistic, mm-hmm. indeed heroic man who, like so many others, wants to make his way as an immigrant in America. You would, with a couple of small exceptions. One thing I didn't tell you is that, although he was having this heroic adventure, he also had some misadventures during those same years when he was bouncing around. Yeah. One was up in Montreal. He was working in a bank, and believe it or not, the banker who ran the place was engaged in some version of the Ponzi scheme of robbing Peter to pay Paul. Now, Ponzi wasn't involved, but when it all collapsed, Ponzi needed to get out of there fast because he thought he'd be swept up in it, he forged a check, and he ended up serving some prison time. Oh, in Canada. In Canada, in Montreal. Huh. So, and then on his way out, he tried to make some money. When he was he was allowed to cross over the border back into the United States, he brought some Italian immigrants with him who were undocumented, and he got nabbed by immigration for illegal immigration. And he spent some more time in prison. This time down in Atlanta. So he's a real mixed bag. Nothing he did in those two incidents. No, exactly. Well, they were you know, not nearly as evil as the skin he gave precisely. was good. Exactly. So, so far he has a moral bank account with Prager anyway. Okay, good. All I right. agree. Uh, I think, that was, I think that's, a, that's a good accounting. All right, fair enough. So uh, we're up now to uh, 1919. The war is ending or over, and uh, he is not really moving uh, in a direction that would bring his mother back in Italy pride. Exactly. Okay, go then, on. There's truly a eureka moment. He had been writing to people over in, in Europe looking for ideas, business schemes, business plans, not just schemes, but legitimate businesses. And in one of the letters that was sent back to him, a little piece of paper fluttered out of the envelope. And it was something called an international reply coupon. It was, it was a really unusual, really mundane um, form of international currency. Right, I remember it. I used to send it to radio stations. Okay. Yep. Exactly. It basically was a way to send a self-addressed stamp envelope overseas mm-hmm. so that one post office would recognize this currency. You could buy a stamp with it in any country in the world. Right. Ponzi recognized that after World War I, currencies around the world were depreciated, had been devalued by the war. So the same IRC, the same postal coupon you'd buy in one country at one value, conceivably was worth a different amount and more in another country. It, it, this is arbitrage. This was currency exchange. This was, believe it or not, both legal and theoretically possible, that if you could buy an enormous amount of these things, these postage stamps, if you will, in one country and sell them in another country where they were worth more, you could become rich. Why would they be worth more in another country? Because they had not, their values had not been adjusted to reflect the depreciated currencies of European economies. So, uh, in they, you could buy, let's say, five for a dollar in Boston, and in Barcelona, you could buy 20 for a dollar. Because the Barcelona, the Italian currency, was so devalued. Oh, I see. So, no well, all right, that's perfectly that. legal. That's called speculating. Exactly. People okay. do it. Hey, there are currency traders on Wall Street doing it today. That's how uh, Soros made his money. Precisely. Yeah. Okay. Exactly. So, Ponzi realizes, wait a second, this is great. All I need, though, is money to get started. I have to go invest money to make money. 
He goes to a bank. He had no credit. He had... His, okay, his, hold on. All right. We're, uh, uh, no, no, don't be sorry. You're <laughs> leaving me in, uh, in suspense here. one eight Prager 776 the book, Ponzi's Scheme, Mitchell Zukoff. And uh, we'll return in a moment how the scheme develops coming up. Hi, everyone. If you've been injured in an accident that was not your fault, listen up. We have legal professionals standing by to answer your questions for free. Call now and find out if you have a case and how much it's potentially worth. Call 800-702-5400. I'm here with spokesman John Wolfe. So, John, tell everyone listening who should call right now. Well, Maria, first off, thank you for having me here. It's always nice to answer the listeners' questions. Now, as far as who should call in... Anyone who's been injured in an accident and think you deserve compensation, give us a call right now. 800-702-5400. You'll find out if you have a case and how much it's potentially worth. Thanks, John. You heard it, folks. Take advantage of this opportunity and call now. 800-702-5400. Advertisement sponsored by Legal Help Center may not be available in all states. Dennis Prager here. And, boy, am I waiting to hear how this happens. Ponzi Scheme, the biography of Charles Ponzi, the guy who invented the Ponzi Scheme, and we're not talking about Social Security because all of you called in on that immediately. The a true story of a financial legend. All right, we're in 1919. Ponzi, just to summarize for those who uh, either don't have good memories or just tuned in, Ponzi's an immigrant from Italy, uh, is both a heroic man, literally gave blocks of skin from his body to a to a woman that he was you know wasn't even involved with just a woman who had been burned and needed to live getting skin and yet got in trouble uh, with some little financial uh, bad things also smuggling some italian immigrants in from canada it's now 1919 is this now after the war just after the war yes all righty go ahead so he has discovered that uh, you can make money with international reply coupons, which is legal. Yes. Go ahead. But he doesn't have the money. It takes money to make money. He's going to need some kind of bankroll to go and buy these international reply coupons and bring them back here and figure out how to make the logistics work. So he goes to a local bank, and the bank just about laughs him out the door. He's got no credit. He, he, won't, he doesn't want to reveal his plan to them because he thinks they'll steal it. So he goes around, tries to borrow money from other places, no luck. So he decides, I've got to go to the public. I've got to take my idea out and offer people tremendous profits. I'll share these profits, but they need to give me the seed money. So so he offers, he opens up a little storefront, not a real storefront, a little office in downtown Boston on School Street, right around the corner from Boston City Hall, and basically hangs out a shingle calling himself the Securities and Exchange Company. This is before the SEC exists. Only in America. Only in America. Yeah. And that's what he's thinking. Only yep. in America. The SEC isn't even around yet. Right. So he gets the name. Okay. He had it first. So people start slowly dribbling in because he's offering such amazing profits. He will increase. He'll give you 50% interest in 45 days. 50. 50. 5 And this is a time it was, the banks were paying what they are now, a few percent a year. So people tentatively started giving him money, a few, a few. And when the time came for them to redeem their coupons, to redeem their certificates, he was ready to pay. 
with money from later investors because he still hadn't figured out the logistics of his plan. He offered to give them their money back, but what he did was said, of course, here's your money. But if, of course, if you want to invest again, you can double it, you know, again, you, know you can keep the... the oh, going. and of course, people think, of, oh, my God, look, I could obviously uh, get 50% more, but why not do it again? Okay. Take another spin of the wheel. Right. So they did. And money starts pouring in, and Ponzi gets a little nervous. He's really still trying to figure uh, it out. Of course. I was just going to ask you that. How does the guy sleep at night? Go ahead. He, you know, he, he found a way. He kept trying to figure out, how do I make this work? And it became really apparent to him that there was no way to possibly. If I calculated once, just his first 18 investors, if he had been able to get enough coupons to pay them off, it would have been a stack 21 feet high. Now, once he had thousands of investors, you'd have to have basically fill the Titanic with oh, these coupons. Oh, I feel, I, I'm starting to feel bad for him. It's, you know, you can see it. The train is on the tracks. and it's So just, you don't think he's going to bed every night just, uh, you know, um, laughing at the public? I know he's not for this reason. Right around this time, he starts being treated for ulcers. It's uh, getting to him. Uh, he wants to succeed. He has married. Part of what's driving him now is not just the, the, the love of his mother and wanting to satisfy her. He marries this beautiful young Italian-American girl, Rose Ganeco. Her father owned a little fruit stand here in Boston. And, he, and all Rose wants is a, a little house with a nice family, a picket fence, and, and, her, and her Charles. But he wants her dripping in diamonds and bathed in furs. And so he wants to make her rich, and he wants to satisfy her beyond her wildest dreams. Does he have any children at this time? Not yet. Okay. They've just been married. She, he wanted to how wait. Old, how old is he now? He is now 37. And she's 21. She's 21. Okay. And they're, they've settled in a nice little apartment in a, in a suburb, and she just wants to have the babies. But he's saying, wait, wait till I'm a success. And things start taking off, and suddenly the money's pouring in. And he says, let's go buy a big house. And they bought a beautiful mansion in the, in the uh, suburban village of, of Lexington. where we have uh, Lexington You don't Congress. know. My heart is breaking. <laughs> yeah, I'm sorry. <laughs> no, it is. I, I'm it is. living this thing. Yes. All right. Hold on. We'll be back in a moment. Ponzi's scheme. This is the way to learn history, in my opinion. Mitchell Zukoff and Dennis Prager. 1-8 Prager 776. Okay, everybody, you're listening to the uh, to the uh, Dennis Prager Show, and my guest is Mitchell Zukoff, who's written this fascinating uh, part of sliver of American history, the biography of Charles Ponzi and the scheme. It's it, it's not the book, after all, is titled Ponzi's Scheme. It's the sort of history I love. Now, all right, this is the dramatic moment here. Is it fair to say, or is it because you just have sympathy for your the subject of your book, that one at this time is almost feeling bad for Charles Ponzi? I think that's fair to say. He is completely stressed out. And now, in other frauds, the, 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 the whole thing is based on the idea of when do I get out? Where's my exit door? Ponzi never had one. Ponzi was not looking to get out. He was looking to make good. All evidence points to it. At one day, he was walking around literally with a $1.2 million certificate of deposit in his name, in his top pocket. In the other pocket of his, of his suit coat, he had two first-class tickets to Italy for the, the long-awaited honeymoon he wanted to take with his wife, Rose. 
he could have left. He was still uh, a, a, a citizen of we're, Italy. We're talking first class uh, ship. Absolutely. He could have just about bought the ship in, in mm-hmm. 1919 for a million, too. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. He doesn't leave. He doesn't want to leave. He wants to figure out, and he is absolutely stressed out completely. Oh, my God. He, How do I make good? So he the never, money just he, keeps he, rolling in. He never did the international reply coupon thing. He, he tried again and again, and he realized, finally, there was no way to do it on the scale that would yield the profits on a tiny uh, scale. <laughs> I, 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 I can't believe it, and I hate this, that I'm feeling sympathy for the guy because mm, people— good. But good. On the other hand, there are people who gave their life savings, I suspect. There, there, certainly. But you know what? There was an element of greed there as well. Well, to win, to make 50%, what, in 45 days? Yes. Yeah, that, I would say greed is a fair statement. I, that, that but on the other hand, you know. I, you know, no, he, you know. People were taken. And I guess my goal is to say, look, Ponzi's name has been mud for 85 years. It was more complex than that. And certainly... Another man, a, a more moral man, uh, maybe a man who didn't have the, the pressure he felt to succeed, would have said, you know what, I can't do this. Let me return what money I've taken in and try to make good and, and repay those who I can't. Mm-hmm. But the money kept coming in, and he didn't want to stop it. In January, 1700 comes in when he first starts. By, by March, 25000 by May, four hundred and forty thousand. By June, two point five million. And so wait, two point five million dollars or people? Uh, dollars. Yeah. But then, closing in on a million a day by the end of July. Um, which is equivalent to what today? Over a hundred million a day. It's about a hundred to one. Uh, no, excuse me. I'm, I shouldn't say that. It's, about, it's more like fifteen to eighteen to one. I'm talking about the total, but you could you could see the scale we're talking. So about, about twenty million a day in our current in our current. Yes. Uh... yes, and and it was only getting bigger. And people kept calling him. They wanted to open up bureaus for him across the country. People were negotiating to take investments in New York, in Washington, in Texas, in California. Did anybody ask where are you getting the money from? Yes, and he said he told his his reply coupon story. He said he had developed this system that the bankers don't want to tell you about, and I am sharing it with you. And people were getting money back. Those who came and asked for their returns came in and walked out thousands of dollars richer. But most of them just came back and went for another run. (laughs) Was there a limit to how much you could put in? No, on any amount. And, and reporters were taken in. I've got a copy of a certificate by a guy named Principio Santososo. And uh, Mr. Santososo was a reporter for the Boston Post. He put in $300 when that was more than his weekly paycheck back in June. And the newspapers weren't even onto it. All but right. Then, All right. Go ahead. We're going to run out of time, and I won't know how he got caught. Uh, go, go ahead. The, the key comes in August of, two, of 1920. Uh, a young, aggressive newspaper editor who is working in his father's shadow, Richard Grozier of the Boston Post, decides there must be something illegitimate here. No way could people possibly be making these kinds of returns. And he sticks his best reporters on Ponzi. And, he, and it's a weeks-long battle of wills and nerve to see who will survive. Because Ponzi's saying, you're wrong about me. I'm going to own your newspaper. And most of the other papers in Boston said, hey, we don't want any part of this. But Grozier kept going at it. And when he finally got one of his best reporters, Herb Baldwin, up to Montreal, and he found out about that uh, forged check conviction, everything started to unravel. 
and the house of cards that Ponzi had bit. Well, uh, and it unraveled solely because the public now didn't have faith in him. The, there was this back and forth where the glow, where, excuse me, where the post was beating on him daily, and and people were starting to wonder, hmm, maybe there is something going on here, and they started coming back asking for their money back. But then the the pièce de résistance, the the coup de grace, was. Her Baldwin going up to Montreal, finding out that Ponzi had been on a, a that particular kind of crime, a, a fraud, a bank check forgery, was enough to get people convinced that he must not be legitimate, and they came crashing through his doors, demanding the money, and of course it was it was all gone. So how long was he in operation? Eight months. Oh wow! How fast? How fast from from the top? He was driving the locomobile, the most expensive car of its oh, day. Oh, you know, my heart breaks. I could only imagine because he so wanted to prove himself to his yeah. family. He brought his mother over at uh-huh. the height of it. Uh-huh. He hadn't seen her in 17 years. Uh-huh. He had finally made it. So he puts her on a first-class ship. Instead of using his own tickets, he brings her over with, with a nurse so he could see. Well, I, I'm just curious. Her. Did anybody also report the, that he gave skin? Not until after the fall. All right, so the fall is very fast. People come yes. to the doors, and there's no money to give them. Exactly. The, I'm, I'm surprised he didn't shoot himself. You know, he he was a tremendous optimist. He kept in, insisting to the last that with a little more time, with a little more... He can luck, make the IRC work. Exactly. How long did he go to jail for? First, he goes for two years, um, a federal. He goes on a federal term, and then the state of Massachusetts decided... They wanted a pound of flesh as well for another seven years, and then they deport him. Back to Italy. Uh, all right, some, some final thoughts with you when we come back. Oh, what a sad story. Ponzi scheme, Mitchell Zukoff. I'm Dennis Prager. Back in a moment. All right, everybody. I'm so sorry I couldn't get more calls, and some of you have uh, stories of various Ponzi schemes, but the hour goes so fast. And the book reads like you uh, like you speak. It's, it's it's really fascinating stuff. I wish you uh, good luck on your book. Thanks very much, Dennis. Uh, he uh, he's deported Charles Ponzi, the the inventor of the, of the scheme by which his name is known, is then deported after nine years in prison. Uh, a little more, even yeah, yeah, 1934. So he's in and out of prison much did, of the did, 20s. Did, did Rose uh, uh, divorce him? Well, regrettably, yes. She couldn't imagine going back to a place to Italy where she had never been. They had no money. But interestingly, her family, uh, who were wonderful to me while I was writing this book, kept all the letters between them that, that Ponzi had sent to her over the years. And the one thing that was very clear is that their love never died. Uh, right up to the end of his life, she was sending him letters. They were talking about getting back together. And there were really sort of sweet love notes between the two of them right up to the end. But she did marry another man. Only after Ponzi was dead. Only after. Ponzi's oh, she death. stayed married to him. No, she 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 did divorce him in name. She but... divorced him in name, but kept writing love notes. They both to each other. Uh, absolutely. And he never remarried. He never remarried. And what did he? Did he die a pauper in Italy? He died. He ended up going to Rio de Janeiro to to start. Uh, the Italian airline was opening an office there, and they hired him. And that didn't work out well, and he did end up a pauper in um, Rio de Janeiro. He had $75 to his name. He died in a charity hospital, and there was just enough left to bury him. 
Uh, uh, uh. And she died at what, 96? Yeah, 93. Yeah. At 93, and only married after he died. Yes. It's a very powerful story. Thank you. Well, I thank you. The book is uh, Ponzi's Scheme and Mitchell Zukov. What are you going to write on next? Uh, steroids? <laughs> P.T. Barnum. Are you serious? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> is he who the one who said that a sucker is born every minute? You know, somebody said that about him. Actually. Oh, it was about him. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I, I promise to have you on when you write it. It would be a pleasure. All right. Thank you so much. Take care. All right, good luck. <laughs> you know, it's a very touching story. And it it reaffirms my my belief about having to take the uh, the moral bank account of an individual because you know there are bad guys and there are I don't know well intentioned losers I don't and he's more in that category I guess and I must say to you I don't know if the bad he did ever matched the good he did with that skin story well whatever your conclusion. It's another sliver of Americana brought to you on the Dennis Prager Show. Don't go away. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here. Here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never before seen personal records to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. Salemnow.com.